We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We are marching very quickly through the gospel of Mark. As he unpacks for us a view of Jesus that is like an eyewitness account. And the reason we know that it sounds like it, or that it, it appears as an eyewitness account is because he no doubt received this information from his discipler, Peter himself. We find ourselves in the middle of an interesting passage that's a miracle inside the telling of a miracle. It's a story inside the telling of a story. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke and Mark, tell this story the same way. They begin this one story on the way to finish the story. Something else happens and then he comes and completes it at the end. Let me read that for us. Mark chapter 5 verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, stop right there. He has just come from, from uh, healing the man of the legion of demons. He's, he's uh, found himself not welcome in an area where he did one of the most dramatic miracles of his ministry. They said, please leave us. So he crosses over again back to the other side up near Capernaum. A large crowd had gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. He implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her so that she may get well and live. And Jesus went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in, crowding him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? He looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go into peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came into the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, why make a commotion and weep? 
The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. He gave strict orders that no one should know about this and said that something should be given to her to eat. I've always been fascinated with illusions and illusionists, sometimes called magicians. They have no magic, as you know. They are just really good with tricks. I remember when I was in college, went to see a famous illusionist, a magician, perform at the Memorial Auditorium in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I spent extra money and got as close as I could because I was going to figure out how he did what he did. And I didn't. A few years later, though, a few years ago, rather, I found a, a YouTube channel that one of my sons sent me. And it was called Tales from the Unknown Magician. Have you seen this guy? He wears a mask and shows how they do all the tricks. He says that he does that to push these illusionists further and further to be better. I think he's just making a lot of money. You know what I was surprised by? How easy those tricks actually were and how duped I was and how gullible I was at watching them. There were magicians and illusionists in the Bible. Remember Exodus chapter 6? Moses has this encounter with Pharaoh and they do this, this uh, snake trick, which was no trick for Moses. The wood turned into a serpent and Pharaoh brings in his illusionists. It's tempting when looking at the miracles of Jesus to think of them perhaps as an illusion. That's the way liberal scholars and theologians approach them. Well, that's not exactly what happened. There's always some kind of explanation for these miracles. In the story before us, however, and the way it climaxes and the way it uh, finishes, there is unquestionable proof that Jesus is no illusionist. That what he did was divinely ordained, that he is God in the flesh who carries the power of God and divinity and holds the power of not only life, but also of death. So far in Mark's gospel, he's been talking about Jesus' teaching, his healing, his casting out of demons, his control over nature. And it's almost like this is all crescendoed to what's next, what's next, what's next. And if you were to ask them, what would be the, the clearest proof, the most unquestionable proof of Jesus' identity as God? It would be the question that's raised and answered in this story. 
what we're about to see could not be faked and had evidentiary proof that it wasn't faked. And I'll show you that in a moment. Remember, Jesus has just been in unclean Gentile territory over on the, the southeast part of the Sea of Galilee. He had cast out legion, the, the multiple demons in this man. And he comes back across the lake because they didn't want him to stay. So we're dealing with about a 24, 36 hour window here. He comes back to the shore. He gets on the land. They obviously had seen him coming across the lake. They knew who it was. So many people are there. The text says he stayed by the lakeside, meaning he couldn't move beyond the water. Crowded and accosted by people who wanted some miracle from him or wanted to hear what he said or see what he would do next. This whole passage would have been a breathtaker to a Jewish audience because he's about to interact with uncleanliness, ceremonial uncleanness in a way that we thought he left over in the Gentile territory of the Gerasenes. He comes back here and as we talked about last week, he first engages an unclean uh, woman with a hemorrhage. Now remember, let's just uh, rewind and see where we are. We're looking at three astounding encounters. This is a long proposition, but you gotta get it all in. Three astounding encounters between the compassionate, powerful Savior and desperate, confident faith. We see that Jesus is compassionate and powerful, and we see that the faith of the people involved here was desperate and confident. Just reviewing, last week we looked at the fact that Jesus, number one, responds to the faith of a loving Father. This sets up what we're gonna be looking at the last part of this chapter. Uh, Jesus crosses over the boat, verse 21, he gets there, the crowds gather, pressing him back, basically back into the lake. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus, this would have been someone everyone was familiar with. He was an official, probably took care of the scrolls, probably organized the, the worship services. He was the, the man who was outfitted with ceremonial garb. People knew him, they respected him. Comes up to Jesus. And in an amazing display, this man of authority falls down at the feet of the Lord, which would have gotten everyone's attention, probably hushed the crowd. He then begs him. Verse 23 says, earnestly implored him. It's begging, my, my little daughter, my precious little daughter is lying on her deathbed. She's at the point of death. Look at this faith. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Jesus responds to that faith. I don't think he was responding because he was an official. He responded to the faith, this stitching kind of um, theme that goes throughout this whole passage. And he goes off toward the house with him. He responds to the faith of this loving father. You have the power to do something. Please come and do it. Secondly, remember, just reviewing, Jesus responds to the faith of a suffering woman. This woman who had a menstrual hemorrhage for 12 years, which would have included everything that came with that physically and socially and ceremonially. Physically, she would have been uh, constantly uh, dehydrated. Um, the word here for hemorrhage, by the way, is a strong flow of blood. Always dehydrated. Cramps. Discomfort. 
Even socially, she was outcast because she was ceremonially ceremonially unclean because the book of Leviticus, Leviticus says that when a woman is in that way, she needs to go purify herself, not from sin, it's not a sin offering, but from that condition for a week. She hadn't been to worship in 12 years. She sneaks up behind Jesus. The text is really clear. She comes up behind him and doesn't want to disturb him, probably hiding herself. People knew who she was, probably cloaking herself, comes up and just says, if I could just touch his, his robe, just touching his robe, I'll be healed. She touches him. She's healed. He turns around, encounters her. She's humiliated, embarrassed. She falls at his feet, confesses the whole thing, what she had done, and he honors her faith and says, you're now well, go into peace. Your text says in peace, it's ace, not n in the Greek. Go into peace, be healed. Literally it says sozo, be saved. She was healed inside and out. That's on the way to Jairus's house. Now the camera, if you're looking at it cinematically like Mark is, is telling it, now it goes from the, the, um, uh, the group of people who are following Jesus toward Jairus' house. Now we're at the house. And so we come to the third astounding encounter between the compassionate, powerful Savior and desperate, confident faith. Number three, Jesus commands faith to hopeless parents. Jesus commands faith He's responded to it, these first two encounters. Now he commands it to hopeless parents. I love what James Edwards says. This story swings like a pendulum on a clock between the extremes of human despair and divine possibility. That's really good. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, stop right there. He's still talking to the woman who is walking with them. They've obviously carried on a conversation. He's still encouraging this lady who's been healed and he's interrupted. He's interrupted by an urgent announcement from the friends of this official in the synagogue named Jairus. Messengers from Jairus' house come with, with heartbreaking news that no parent ever would want to hear. Breaks in and interrupts. They came from the house of the synagogue official, Jairus, saying, and the, the Greek tense saying meant they were, they were giving a full explanation. They didn't just say it. They were explaining what had happened, probably the details of her death. Your daughter has died. Why trouble, burden the teacher anymore? Who are they talking to? Grammar matters. Look clearly at the grammar. Your daughter, they are speaking to Jairus. They're not speaking to Jesus. They're speaking to Jairus in the middle of this crowd. Your daughter, Jesus has been walking with him. He's seen this woman be healed. He's heard the conversation with this lady. It's interesting that the duration of the woman with the hemorrhage was 12 years And the age of this daughter was 12 years as well. I don't think that that's any 
significance. It doesn't represent the 12 tribes of Israel or anything like that. I do think that in God's divine providence, he basically is making the point that the duration of the woman with the hemorrhage's suffering was the same time as the entirety of this little girl's life. Imagine the, uh, the conflicting emotions in this scene. We need to feel these emotions. 12 years of suffering for one woman becomes joy in an instant. Instant healing from suffering and shame and pain and being absolutely excluded from everything that was important to her family and friends and being unclean, unable to be touched, healed and joyful in an instant from bad to good. And then 12 years of life becomes death in an instant. You see the difference? Suffering to joy hope to sorrow. Then they appealed to Jairus. You know what? Just, he didn't get here in time. Leave him alone. Some commentators, and I don't have reason to doubt this. It's perhaps true. Some commentators think that there's a little bit of a jab in this. If Jesus hadn't been dealing with this poor disenfranchised woman, he would have had time to come to you, this official of the synagogue, and deal with your daughter. We can't be sure of that. That's certainly a possibility. I think there is frustration in the voice of Jairus' friends. It reminds me of the scene with the raising of Lazarus. Remember John records this? Jesus' response to hearing that his friend Lazarus was sick they come and say, your friend Lazarus is dying. He's sick. This is what Jesus did in John eleven six. 6. So when Jesus heard that he was sick, then he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You know why he stayed? He wanted Lazarus to die so he could raise Lazarus from the dead. John eleven twenty one. 21, Martha said to him when he finally shows up, love Martha, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, instead of getting on Martha at how bad she is confronting Jesus, look at her faith. She actually says, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. It's not all negative. I think that's similar to what's going on here. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. She's gone. Your daughter has died. If he had gotten here sooner, maybe, but now... Important, she is literally, physically beyond hope, beyond help. I love verse 36. But Jesus, this Greek word is just pregnant with meaning. Overhearing, overhearing what was said. Let me uh, give you some, some Greek dictionary data, okay? Perakuo, uh, or it means, first possibility, hearing what is not intended for one's ears. Second, being unwilling to hear or ignoring. Third, paying no attention to what you hear. I think all three of those in this word are aware, are, are at play in what Jesus is saying. 
Oh, really? You think she's dead? Really? This is it? Really, you want to dismiss me and not have me come to the house? You think you're done with me? So Jesus says now to Jairus, to the synagogue official, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Why would Jairus fear if he just got news that his daughter was already dead? He wasn't afraid that she was going to die. She had died. What would he be afraid of? Don't have fear. This word for fear is bigger than just frightened fear. It means overwhelmed with anxiety and loss and fear. Then there's the central command, only pistuo, have faith, believe, believe. Believe what? Believe what? There's no object here. Just believe. Believe what? Believe what you came to Jesus for in the first place, which was help beyond any human help. Hope beyond any human hope. The tense of the verb is actually keep on believing. Continue the faith I've already seen in you. You came to ask me for help. Keep believing. Keep your faith. Boy, there's a lesson there. When the world seems to absolutely be absolved of all hope, when we see our faith tested, we should hear the words of the Lord, no matter how hopeless it seems, keep your faith. Keep Believing, Said another way, let no circumstance, no matter how bad, no circumstance, uproot, dislodge your faith in a great God and a compassionate, loving, powerful Savior. Verse 37. Jesus takes control. He allowed no one to accompany him. That's interesting to me that he had such command of the situation. He, he spoke, he told the people what to do, and, and they, they obeyed. He allows no one to come with him to accompany him except, and this is the first mention of that inner circle we're gonna see throughout the rest of Mark, Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Introduced to Jesus' inner circle. These men would see his glory at the transfiguration. Remember, he would take them up in Caesarea Philippi to see his transfiguration these men will be called with him deep into the olive grove in Gethsemane and asked specifically to pray with and for him. He says, I want you three to come and watch what happens next. So they came to or into the house of Jairus, the synagogue official, opens the door, inside and outside, around the house is a commotion. What's the commotion? He tells us, people loudly weeping and wailing. As they come up to Jairus's house, as they open the door, it's a beehive of activity. It's a, a, a cacophony of, of noise. It's just distracted and commotion and disruptive. It's it's grief personified. Now, we talk in our day of, of attorneys, some attorneys as ambulance chasers, right? 
They're looking for something that they can just follow and find a job from. Well, some seem to troll to find a job. And similarly, the profession of, there was a profession of professional mourners in the ancient Near East. They actually still exist in some uh, Middle Eastern countries. And what, what the idea was, was that you want people to grieve with you. And so in order to share the grief and invite people to come, you have loud, there was, there was no internet, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter to let everybody know that someone had died. So you'd hire professional mourners, imagine this being your job, and you would come and weep and wail and yell and cry to draw attention to the situation. By the way, Jesus doesn't condemn that. He deals with it, but he doesn't condemn it. I think that was the Facebook of the day. Professional mourners, by the way, this is important. This is where we're gonna begin finding some proof. Professional mourners, it was, a, it was a skilled and trained profession. Sounds a little odd. They were skilled and trained in crying, skilled and trained in wailing. Some were skilled and trained. Luke tells us that there were flute players there. Musically. Can you imagine this team that's been hired by Jairus' family to come and mourn his daughters, coming, evaluating her situation, feeling her pulse. They used to put a mirror up before the, the mouth to see if there was any breath coming out that would condensate in the mirror, checking her out. Can you imagine them doing that and being wrong? Going out and doing their thing and someone comes out, hey, uh, you might want to tone it down. She's having dinner. I mean, that's ridiculous. If anyone knew that Jair Jairus' daughter was dead, it was these professional coroners. It confirms that she was truly dead. They would not have made that mistake. That's what they did for a living that's the scene. But they were about to be addressed in a way that they had never been addressed at any funeral before. Door bolts open. Jesus walks in, says directly to the mourners, looks at them and he says this, why make a commotion and weep? Now, is that not a self-evident question? Uh, they could have said, because Jairus' daughter's dead, I don't know if you've got the news, you aren't needed anymore. Why make a commotion? Why, why weep? And then he says this, the child has not died. In other words, you are mistaken. That's important that he kind of pokes his finger in their, their eyes there. But rather, she's asleep. Now, some have questioned that this story is about a resurrection. They say it's about a resuscitation. She was comatose. And so that's why Jesus says, ah, she's just sleeping. But sleep is used all throughout the New Testament as a, a euphemistic way to describe death. That's the way the Lord sees. God sees sleep. It's something temporary, something you wake up from. Everyone does in the resurrection. Again, liberal scholars would say this is this child is comatose and Jesus wakes her up. The miracle is that he 
startled her. Was she not startled by these weeping and wailing people all around her? I don't know how he could wake her up if they were doing all this. But anyway, that's an aside. Verse 40. How do we know that they, were, they felt dissed? They began, your text may say laughing at him, mocking him. Now, if you want proof that what they're doing is not entirely genuine, they move from weeping and wailing to mocking and laughing in an instant. That's some emotional skill. <laughs> I love verse 40. But putting them all out. Get out of here. You're done. Not only are you done because I'm about to do something that doesn't require your services, but you're done because you're mocking and laughing at me and my ability to do what I can do. Kicks them out. Then he took along, oh, this is so tender. This is so sweet. The child's father and mother and his own companions, Peter, James, and John, this is a multi-room house. We know that because he goes from in the front door. Now he enters into the room where the child was. The mourners become offended. They laugh at him. They leave. They're kicked out of the room. They took this that Jesus was saying that they were wrong about their diagnosis. Can I just tell you, they were right about their diagnosis. And God in his providence uses their presence, their assessment, their corner ability to confirm her death. But Jesus is about to show his power in a way that they hadn't seen before. Kicks them out of the room. Now there are seven people in the room, all right? Let's count them. James, Peter, John, Jairus, Jairus' wife, the dead girl, and the great physician. Verse 40, 41 rather, is completely uncouth for a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi. Completely unceremonial for anyone who would not be then cast out of the synagogue or the temple because they had done this. He touches a dead person. Forbidden by Levitical law. He touches the dead girl. He said to her, park, stop. Who speaks to dead people? Jesus does. He said to her, can I just, before we go on to this, uh, over at Luke chapter 11, uh, chapter seven, you can just listen if you want. I, this is so similar in the way um, he deals with, remember he heals the centurion, uh, centurion's slave. And then um, soon afterwards, Luke 7, 11, he went to a city called Nine that would have been south and west of, um, of the Sea of Galilee. He goes south and a little below uh, uh, where the bottom of the lake is. His disciples were going along with him accompanied by a large crowd. He was approaching the gate of the city and a dead man was being carried out. The, oh, look at the compassion here. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. 
And a sizable crowd from the city was with her, probably some professional mourners as well. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, he talks to a corpse. I say to you, arise. Wow. The dead man sat up, had a lot to say, began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. They began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, you think? And God has visited his people and report of this report concerning him went out all over all Judea and in the surrounding district. By the way, that report was before the incident we're watching in Mark. So he comes in and he speaks to her. He said to her, Mark is writing in Greek. Uh, the book of Mark is in Greek. Jesus, no doubt, knew Greek. He probably knew Hebrew, no doubt knew Hebrew and knew uh, and spoke in the common language, which was Aramaic. In order to get the full gravity of this scene, Mark, writing in Greek, probably to a Roman audience, jumps back into Aramaic. I think the reason he does it is this is so tender, so genuine, so compassionate, such a sweet moment, he could not let the original language go, which Peter would have put in his, in his ear. He said to her, Talitha, kum, kumu in Aramaic. Then he translates it for the Greek audience. What's it mean? It's an Aramaic word that literally means little lamb. It's a pet name, little lamb, little girl. I say to you, the verb reemphasizes, I say to you, get up. Little lamb, get up. He doesn't say wake up. That's important. He doesn't say open your eyes. That's important. He doesn't say come back from the dead. That's important. He says get up. Why is that important? Because immediately, there's Mark's favorite adverb again, verse 42. Immediately, the girl got up. I love this. She didn't sit up. She didn't lean up. She didn't slowly wake up. She didn't like flitter her eyes in this slow kind of resuscitation. She sat up and stood up and began to walk. For she was 12 years old. I think he tells us that so that we know how she wasn't a toddler. She could walk. She was old enough to do this. She gets up. She wakes up. She starts to walk around. These actions are dramatic. This is not a slow coming back to health. The way Mark describes this girl indicates that she comes back to life, full life, full strength. Immediately, she stands up and starts walking. Presumably, and I, I'll tell you why in a second, presumably to the kitchen. She's been on her deathbed, probably not eating, probably not drinking much, unable to eat. 
She wakes up, obeys the Lord, gets up, starts to walk, I think, to the kitchen. <laughs> the text says, and they were astounded. Just take a tour with me. Chapter 1, verse 22. Chapter 1, 22. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority. Chapter 2, verse 7. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? We've never heard, verse 12, anyone like him before. Verse 13, they come out to see him. They were amazed. Chapter two, verse 12, immediately picked up his pallet after he heals the man dropped through the roof. I should say lowered through the roof. I said that earlier and someone says, did they really drop him? Lowered through the roof. They were all amazed. They were glorifying God. In chapter five, verse 20, Jesus heals the man of the legion of demons. He went away and began to proclaim to the capitalists what great things the Lord had done for him and everyone was amazed. Wouldn't you be amazed? You just watched this girl die. The mourners came in, checked her pulse, checked her breath. She was confirmed dead. Jesus had strategically waited long enough for her to die. He tells Jairus and presumably his wife, keep believing. Don't let this dislodge your faith in me or my ability. Verse 43. Can I just say, there, sometimes there's some kind of in-between-the-white-spaces humor in God's Word. This is almost humorous. I mean, put yourself in Jairus' sandals and in his wife's uh, position and in Peter and James and John and even the girl herself. She just, <laughs> she was dead and, and, and she's not dead anymore. That's a big deal. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. Now, is that not an odd command? Because the mourners would have known about this unless they had sentenced the girl to a lifetime of living in a room. Can you imagine? I just, in my sanctified imagination, see the mourners when she walks out. Hey, or having something to eat. You guys want dinner? Just... Mind-blowing. Would it really be possible for the parents, for Peter, for James, for John, not to tell the story, to suppress this reality that they saw a dead person come back to life? Of course not. But Jesus was also aware that as news of his power over death spread, he would be overwhelmed, possibly making, making himself a bigger target for those who wanted to kill him already, you know, it would make his death perhaps premature up in Galilee rather than down in Jerusalem. All he's saying is, he's saying two things. Listen, don't put this on Twitter because I'm already crowded enough. I can't even walk. 
help me here. But he's also saying something far more. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. This is really, really important. This is uh, after going up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were coming down with Peter, James, and John again, by the way. Verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, he told Peter, James, and John, this will, they would hear this again, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. Here it is. Until the Son of Man rose from the dead. The point of that is that his message was not that he could heal and feed and cure. His message was he would die for sin. The gospel message wasn't complete yet. Now, verse 43 ends. This is why I think she was headed to the kitchen. Jesus says, something should be given to her to eat. Of all the things you could say to someone who was dead and who is now alive, somebody ought to feed her. I agree with some scholars who, most scholars who think she got up, started to walk, and she was hungry. She, got, she was going to the kitchen. He knew her need. He cared for her. The girl's hungry. I mean, she's been dying. You should feed her. Just care. It also proves that she really was alive. Now let's back up a little bit. Matthew, Luke, and Mark all tell these two stories the same way with the bookends of Jairus and his daughters raising from the, rising from the dead uh, uh, on the bookend of, of this uh, middle story of the woman with the hemorrhage who is healed. In God's providence, think about this. What's the same about these two appointments with the great physician? Both of these women, the woman with the hemorrhage, the woman with the, with the, the sickness that led to her death, were in desperate conditions that were, listen, beyond the help of any person. Beyond the help of anyone. Look at the extremes and the differences. The identifying feature of the woman with the hemorrhage was chronic, debilitating, uh, a condition that kept her perpetually unclean. The identifying feature of Jairus is that he is an important official at the synagogue. From the lowest of low to the most respected. The woman approaches Jesus anonymously from the back. Jairus comes right up face to face with stature and privilege to the Lord. The woman has unsolicited faith. Jairus is told to keep believing. And Jairus, listen, Jairus had just witnessed the faith of this poor suffering woman be the means of her healing and accessing the power of Jesus. And in a strange reversal, I think Jesus is saying, you need to be like her. A synagogue official needs to be like the poor anonymous woman. Implications. Wow. You stare at this long enough and you begin to see some things that just overwhelm your thinking and practicality. First thing is death is certain for everyone. Now, you could look at this and say, well, look, Jesus has the power over death, so that should 
be that we pray for those who are on their deathbed and if we have enough faith, then they won't die. That's the word faith movements message from this, right? If someone dies who you're praying for, the problem is not they're dying, it's in your faith. Little Talitha was joyously, joyfully and wondrously resurrected that day. But mark this, little Talitha would die again. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man once to die, then the judgment. So I think this just brings out death is certain. Lazarus would die again. The, the, the young man who was uh, um, uh, raised from the dead in Luke chapter 11, he would die again. But we also find another implication. Death is no match for Jesus. Death, think about this. Death is no match for Jesus. Rather, the Hebrews tells us that we're slaves to the fear of death all of our days. If Jesus can conquer our greatest fear, then what is there to fear? It's no match for him either. Oh, we're all going to die. What do we learn in Romans 4? that his resurrection gives us hope that he can bring us back from the dead and enter in his joy in heaven. I think another thing that we learn from this, death is not the enemy of the believer. Isn't it interesting that everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die? Now, I'm voting for the rapture. I'd I'd like to go that way. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Christians, I want to go to heaven. And then we, we struggle when people die. I was sharing at Jordan Way's memorial last week that um, we were all praying. We were all praying that the Lord would leave Jordan here with us on earth. That's a good prayer. If I get sick, please pray for me like that. That's a good prayer. Paul looked at Epaphras and said, I would have been sorrowful unto death if he had got, he prayed for him, I'm sure. But John chapter 17 says, Jesus is praying to the Father and says, I long that they be with me where I am beholding your glory and my glory that we share before the foundation of the world. So we were praying for Jordan to stay on the earth and Jesus was praying for Jordan to come home. How do we look at death? Is it the great enemy? It's not the great enemy of a believer. It's not... And I love the sustaining admonition of faith. Keep believing. All of us have moments, seasons, situations that challenge our faith, that make us think, do we really believe this? Is the Bible really true? Is Jesus really sufficient? We all have those moments. And if you haven't yet, just live long enough and you will. Jesus affirms Jairus' faith. But in the moment of his greatest loss says, keep believing. He tells these parents, don't lose faith, don't lose hope. One of these men, John, would one day be exiled to an island called Patmos and he would write 
the apocalypse, the book of Revelation. He would see the resurrected Jesus. Listen to what he heard Jesus say. Don't be afraid. This is Revelation 1, 17. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I love this. I was dead. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. How could that be? Next phrase. And I, Jesus, I have the keys of death and of Hades. Hades here is not hell. It's the abode of the dead. If you have the keys to something, you can unlock it. You have access. Let me just say, this screams, screams evangelism. Do you have hope for not if, but when you die? Do you have hope? Is death an enemy to you? Are you a slave to its fear? Does it dominate your thoughts? Does it predict your emotions when you go to the doctor? The current, I checked on the internet, the current death rate is 100%. It's not if, it's when. There was a, a, something I read years ago that was intended to be humorous. I, I really think it's more than humorous. Every mortuary owner could sign all of his letterhead, eventually yours. We kind of snicker at that. There's a lot of truth, a lot of truth in it. Are you ready for death? Are your sins forgiven? Boy, Aaron, that song we sang, forgiven, forgiven. Are you forgiven? Are you gonna face God with a debt that you cannot pay, that can only be paid in a literal hell, suffering forever apart from God and his grace and his goodness? You don't have to face death with fear. You don't have to fear that it is the great enemy. If your faith is in Jesus, who he is, what he's done, that he did die for us in our place on a Roman cross, and he rose from the dead, which gives us hope for the same. If you believe that, you can be saved. You can be dissolved of your fear. Oh, we have fearful moments. I, I understand that, but we have confidence and hope because faith is real and sustained.